This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hi, listeners. It's hard to believe, but we've put out more than a hundred episodes of this podcast. I started this project back in early 2018 with my former colleague, Anissa Purposarvi Horton. So while we planned season seven, we thought we'd look back at some of our greatest hits. Today, we are digging deep into the archives, way back to the last episode of season one, where Anissa and I talked to author Tiffany Dufu about how to find work-life balance. Her advice that you have to let some of the balls in your life drop in order to get things done resonated with me then and does even more so now that my life has gotten more complicated. Take a listen and then give yourself permission to let something drop. So Anissa, do you feel like you have work-life balance? I find it really hard to answer that question because I feel like it depends what day and time you ask. Changes from minute to minute. Exactly. So like, you know, when I went on vacation, I felt like I had great work-life balance. (laughs) On vacation, sure. But then before the week I was there, I felt like my work-life balance is awful because I was constantly staying at work late, trying to, you know, do stuff in advance. So I don't know, like today, I feel like it's pretty good. But tomorrow, who knows? I might say that I don't have work-life balance. (laughs) So what, I mean, aside from being on vacation and having the balance of not, of not working, what makes you feel like you do or don't have that balance? When external circumstances forces me to shift something that's a priority. So in the last podcast, we talked with Gretchen Rubin about the four tendencies and I'm an upholder, which means that I'm generally good with sticking to goals that I set for myself and that others have set for me. Yes, I like that a lot. The problem is when the two are in conflict, I know I told her that I tend to prioritize external expectation, but most of the time I actually try and do both. And, you know, you can see where like when it's a time consuming thing, this can get me into a bit of trouble. You don't pick one or the other, you pick both and then... Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's like, I feel like I have work-life balance when I have full control of how I spend my time and when I'm quote-unquote successful in terms of sticking to my priorities. What about you? Well, I think, yeah, the external factor is big for me. Um, Because I'm a working parent, it feels like how much balance I have depends a lot of times on circumstances that I can't control. So my husband and I have set things up to be pretty equal between uh, both of us and our family and our household responsibilities. We both work full time and we both work similar hours. Um, But I also feel like there's rarely like a typical week. And I remember when we were talking to uh, Laura Vanderkamp uh, in a previous episode, she was talking about like there is never a typical week. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely true. Uh, If my son gets sick, which happened you know, recently, or if there's a big news story, which happened recently, um, or there's an event or whatever else, then the balance part kind of like goes out the window. Yeah, unfortunately, life events make it kind of hard to achieve that balance every day of the week. Although sometimes I wonder if it's just how we define it that's the problem. Welcome to Secrets of the Most Productive People, a podcast where we try to figure out how to work smarter instead of harder. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. And I'm Fast Company Assistant Editor, Anissa Purvisari Horton. This week, we're going to answer the question, is work-life balance really possible? Oh, that's such a fraught question because it can become loaded with like a lot of value judgments. Like you're not devoting enough time to your family and you're not a good parent or spouse or son or daughter or friend, or you're not working 60-hour weeks, so you're not a dedicated worker and you're not going to be successful. Yeah, interestingly, though, apparently a lot of what people think about their work-life balance isn't 
fully accurate. Uh, Laura Vanderkamp pointed out in a previous article for Fast Company, when, and she mentioned this, I think, as well, when we had her on the podcast. So she studied time logs of people who work in high-pressure jobs, like accounting law or um, you know people who are entrepreneurs. And they all claim to work 80 hours a week. But then when she really looked at how many hours they logged, it was more like in the mid-50s. And so she thought that even though they perceive that they're logging insane hours, studies show that when you compare estimated work weeks with time diaries, people can be off by as much as 25 hours a week. That's a lot of time. That's like a whole part-time job's worth of Uh fake imaginary time that you're working. (laughs) You know, she also found that people sleep a lot more than they think they do. And of course, we always hear about like how we're a sleep deprived nation. And so many people say that they'll get like get less than six or seven hours of sleep a night. But that's not actually true. Probably about the quality of sleep, right? Because you can get eight hours and still feel really crappy and not well rested at all. Yes, 100%. I've seen those things, a lot of those things play out in my life. After our episode with Laura, I started keeping a time log myself. I'm about three weeks in, and um, she was right. There's no typical week, but I noticed some of the things that, other things that she mentioned. I logged about 52 hours sleep total, which averages about seven hours a night. And I feel, I know in our very first episode, I talked about how I'm so tired and I never sleep, but I still feel exhausted, right? Because I was woken up a lot during the night. So it wasn't like a quality seven hours a night. And then because it was a week when my son got sick, one of those weeks I logged, I didn't actually end up working as much as a normal week. And I logged slightly less than 40 hours of work in a week, um, but a lot more childcare hours. So yeah, I think there's there's definitely, we overestimate, you know, I probably, if I wouldn't have been logging, it might've said like, oh, I worked 50 hours and I got five hours of sleep a night. And it's not actually accurate when we look at it. Yeah, and that gets to what a lot of experts point out about how we can never have a complete balance. Like some weeks you just have to pay more attention to work and some weeks other parts of your life, like if your kid is sick, gets more attention. Like life is never fully balanced in this perfect equilibrium that we all think it should be. Right, and that's I think that's, that's the first fundamental part of the, the question of work-life balance because there's that expectation that it should be, which leads people to feeling like they're always failing in some way because you have something unexpected to come up, you know, like a sick kid and you have to miss a day of work and then you feel guilty. I felt really bad, for example, that I missed three meetings with um, each of our section editors that day. But when I checked in at work the next week, the response was like, oh, yeah, it was fine. You know, similarly, when I've had to miss time with my family because I've had a work commitment and I thought, oh, my God, it's going to be a disaster. I'm not going to be there to do all these different things. And I come home and my husband basically says the same thing. Oh, yeah, it was fine. Yeah, I feel like so much of our expectations are self-imposed guilt. And I think the problem that contributes to people feeling like they have to work all the time and they don't have work-life balance is smartphones and the feeling that you have to be always on all the time. It's like there's no more traditional work week, right? Because you don't just log off when you leave the office. You can check in on work when you're commuting, at dinner, in the evenings, on the weekends, or, you know, even when you're on vacation. Like you're not just logging in those work hours at your desk and they're not always in clear blocks of time either. Like sometimes it's five minutes and 10 minutes and it's really easy to let it creep into other parts of your life. And even if it adds up to one or two hours of work, it feels like you'd never have a break and you're always working. Yeah, that's and that's the like stuff of life, too. You can feel really overwhelmed when you have to remember a bunch of little things, too. So maybe you're not like spending, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours at home with your family, but you have to remember all these like little life things like making doctor's appointments and getting birthday gifts and planning vacation and we're out of paper towels and all of those like little 
any of those little tasks on their own don't take up a, a bunch of time, but like the sheer mental load of all of that can feel really exhausting. Oh my God, I really hate doing those admin stuff. <laughs> it's like my least favorite part of adulting. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of mental load, I feel like that's an appropriate place for us to start talking about emotional labor and the gender imbalance of work-life balance. Like it shouldn't be a gender like a gender term, but there has been several studies that have shown that women with partners, um, both with and without kids, by the way, do more housework than their male partners, even when the woman is a breadwinner. And when they have kids, they do more childcare. And that's just hands-on time. That doesn't account like for all the things that you just mentioned, which is invisible and you don't you don't see it. Yeah. We should maybe back up for a second and define emotional labor. So it's like you say, it's all the kind of invisible work. It's that running checklist that I mentioned that you keep in your head. Whose birthday's coming up? What are we running low on in the house? Who knows what events and appointments are on the calendar? Who plans vacations? Who remembers and reminds other people about things? And it usually ends up being women. And since it's kind of invisible work, it can also build resentment and lead to burnout. And um, we should mention that it's not just at home that this kind of emotional labor uh, takes place. Women often end up doing a lot of the emotional labor at work, too. Uh, Just think about our office, anybody's office, your office. Uh, When you think about who in the office sets up the meetings, takes the notes at the meetings, sends the follow-up emails, who plans the office parties, chances are it's usually the women in the office. Yeah, and in a bigger picture way, the question of work-life balance is one that women get asked more often than men. I mean, every time we see an interview with a successful woman or a woman in a position of power, they or especially ones that have kids, they always get asked how they manage to balance it all. But we don't see successful men who are dads do that, and arguably, I mean, they are parents too, and they have lots going on, but for I, some reason, they don't get asked that. Yeah, and it's really too bad because it's it's kind of making that presumption that like maybe that it's not important to them. And, you know, chances are it probably is. Um, I remember one of the very many, many sexist things that was said about Hillary Clinton when she was running for president was, would she be able to be a grandmother and a president? (laughs) Never mind, of course, all of the male presidents that we've had who have fathers of school-age kids or grandfathers of lots of kids. But yes, the entire concept of work-life balance does often overlook men, which is really unfair. It's pretty insulting assumption that men don't want to be around for their kids or that even having time for your own life and your own interests is something that only women care about. Yeah, this stereotype isn't just hurtful to women, right? It's hurtful to men as well. I mean, I know plenty of men who care about work-life balance and those who are parents, they want to be good parents and be attentive and present for their kids. And on that note, I think that's a perfect spot for us to introduce our next guest. Today, we're speaking to someone who has studied this topic, work-life balance in depth. Tiffany Dufu is a leadership expert and the author of Drop the Ball, Achieving More by Doing Less. She was the former chief leadership officer of Levo League, and more recently, she is the co-founder and CEO of The Crew, a peer coaching service for women looking to accelerate their professional and personal growth. I can't wait to hear what Tiffany has to say about work-life balance, both gendered and not gendered. Uh, Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. And we're back. Tiffany, welcome to Secrets of the Most Productive People. Thank you so much for having me. So we're talking about work-life balance today, and you know, you've written a whole book on this topic. But for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work um, and what your point of view is on that issue, can you elaborate? And how did you come to, you know have that point of view? 
Absolutely. Well, my life's work is advancing women and girls. That's pretty much why I'm on the planet. (laughs) And I had a couple of experiences that caused me to think a little bit differently around this conundrum that I've been personally working on, which is how we get more women at the highest levels of leadership. And one of the experiences that I had was I started getting in 2013, a lot of requests to meet. I started meeting with women on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9, 10, and 11 a.m. And it became very clear to me that one of the biggest reasons why we don't have a lot of women at the highest levels of leadership is because we're really busy. (laughs) And we're busy particularly trying to manage this negotiation between our ambition what we really want to achieve in our lives, and all of the responsibilities that we often feel on the home front or even on the work front, but as caregivers. And I thought I'd better go ahead and respond to this question that I keep getting, which is, how do you do it all? How do you manage it all? And the answer for me is that you're not. <laughs> you are you can pursue the things that you want in life, but it doesn't mean that you have to do it all in order to achieve it. So I'm really glad that you brought up gender because it's true. Like on its face, work-life balance is not a gendered, none of those are gendered words. It doesn't seem like it should be a gendered concept. But why, uh, why do you think this is? Like why, like what, what can we, can we do about it? I mean, obviously it can, it kind of rests on a lot of assumptions, right? That like men don't care about their, their home life or their home responsibilities or that those aren't their responsibilities. Like why, Why um, is the work-life balance question always focused on women? Yeah, I think there's a real reason for that. You know, all of us are born into our lives playing certain roles. In my conversations with so many people from so many different backgrounds, one of the things that's most fascinating is how even though we're born in different parts of the world to different families with different values, somehow we all ended up with very similar job descriptions for what it means to be a good anything. And men have lines in their job descriptions as well. There's a very insidious line in the job description for what it means to be a good husband and father that you must aspire to be a breadwinner at all costs, even the costs of meaningfully engaging with your family. So the reason why we've arrived at these assumptions about who should do what and why the work-life balance is often a woman's issue is because from the time that we were wrapped in a pink or a blue blanket, we've been sent lots of messages about what it means to be a good person in any of those roles. And those messages come from our experiences when we were children. It comes from television. We get it from every billboard that we still see. I see lots. I saw two today that told me I should be skinnier and I should have longer hair. So, you know, we're getting these messages constantly. We're all swimming in the culture And yet we wonder, and sometimes we blame ourselves for this feeling that we are supposed to be the perfect anything. And certainly that to be a good woman, that to be a good wife, that to be a good mother means primarily spending your time taking care of others. So that's where it comes from. And I think we should all cut ourselves a bit of slack (laughs) um, because we're all kind of uh, have been indoctrinated with these ideas. And that means that it takes some intentionality and it takes quite a bit of courage to redefine those job descriptions for each of us, which is what I encourage us to do and drop the ball. Yeah. And so when you talk about that and when you talk about dropping the ball for 
a type A personality who wants to be a perfectionist or just from somebody who, you know, is a working mom and has to go on that business trip but also feels the pressure to be present in her child's life, how how can they drop the ball in certain areas or decide which areas are worth, what balls are worth dropping, what areas are worth the give and take in and not feel that guilt about it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to banish guilt. That's like one of my life goals (laughs) because (laughs) it's such an insidious feeling. You know, the first step is really getting clear about what matters most to you, separate and apart from what you've been taught should matter. And there are several exercises that I went through in order to arrive at that myself. The least expensive um, and the most straightforward are one that was made popular by Stephen Covey, in which you just do a funeral visualization exercise of your life in the future and what you hope that people would say about you at your funeral. For those of us who tend to be perfectionists and tend to be kind of obsessed with checking things off our to-do list, certainly when you reflect on the end of your life, you don't want people standing up and saying, well, you know, she got a lot of things done on her to-do list. They're like, oh, you're really great at get, reaching inbox zero. And you're like, is, oh, yeah. is that what it's like? <laughs> Which I am, but like, I don't want to be known for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's not what you want people to Yeah. So it kind of forces you to think about the forest from the trees. And whenever I ask people what matters most to you, usually they rattle off different parts of their lives. You know, my career is important to me. My marriage is important to me. My kids are important to me. But what I really try to coach people toward is figuring out what do you hope to achieve in relationship to those areas of your life? Because that's really the first step unless you've gone through some kind of process of figuring that out for yourself, you're likely just living someone else's story about what should be important to you. And that's the first input to then take you to the next step, which is figuring out, well, what's my highest and best use in achieving what matters most to me? So, you know, there's a, there's a process that we can all take ourselves through. It's not a simple one, Um, But it's doable. And certainly it's helped me and a lot of other people to create a filter for drowning out a lot of the noise. But so when you identify those those balls that are okay to drop, what if it's stuff that still needs to get done? It's still, you know, it's a lot of and that I think happens a lot to women, um, but just to people as well is like all of the emotional work and all of the remembering of things and all the kind of little niddling tasks that we have to that are part of life that you can't just, you know, completely drop the ball on and forget they still need to get done. How do you, what do you do about those? If they're not serving your bigger purpose, but you still need to do them. Yeah. So that's where the psychology of dropping the ball comes in. (laughs) There are lots of things that I used to think were absolutely essential and really important um, in order for um, life to be successful and for me to be productive. So, you know, I I wouldn't say that it's an easy task, but I I would argue that a lot of those little things that that are niggling at us um, actually could drop. Um, It doesn't mean that we are not going to face the consequences of them, but it does give other people in our lives an opportunity to move things forward. So, you know, I'm in Denver right now because um, I've launched a new venture called The Crew and we're introducing a really incredible circle of women here tonight. It means that, you know, my husband's at home and he got the kids ready for school. I I can pretty much assure you that my Black children went to school ashy today that they they probably <laughs> were still wearing their shorts when it's fall and they probably should have been wearing long pants. Uh, and is that in the back of my head? Sure, that's in the back of my head. But 
I've dropped the preoccupation with ensuring that little things like that happen um, because the the alternative is that I'm able to be here doing something that I really hope will make a difference in the world. So, you know, I, I would argue that there are lots of things that actually could drop or that we could deprioritize that um, could help us to achieve more. I feel like that is related to, um, you know, burning out because when you don't drop you know, all the balls that you need to drop. Um, you try and do too many things and eventually burnout hits. How do you deal with that and how do you know if it's about to hit you and you need to drop some, you know, things? Yeah. So I I have very clear, I mean, I think each, it's part of that is about self-awareness. When I start to feel like I'm, like people can't count on me, you know, this feeling that I've said yes to so many people and I'm not able to really deliver for people and I feel like I'm letting them down. That's when I know that I've said yes to too many things. I'd much rather be honest with people up front and say, I don't think that I can deliver that for you than to say yes and end up with this feeling of dread. Um, certainly for me, not getting enough sleep. You know, if ever I'm feeling like in order for me to get it all done, I have to give up sleep and I'm getting four or five hours a night, which is low for me. I know that there's something wrong. Uh, Whenever I start to break out, (laughs) you know, I get acne. I think we all have our triggers that, you know, the universe, our bodies, people around us, let us know that it's time for us to do that. I hope that we can not get to that point before we decide to drop some balls, but certainly um, those are some of my triggers. Definitely. I know the triggers that you're talking about. Um, I don't break out, but the sleep thing is definitely big for me. I know that if I start to get less than six hours of sleep, then something's going to go. And it's usually really hard to say no to that in the moment. Yes. The other thing that I'll say is I have an African mother-in-law who kind of speaks in parables. And one of the things that she kind of says under her breath sometimes is that if things are getting easier, it's probably because you're headed downhill. So I also just want to reassure people that sometimes when you are in the midst of the swirl, that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're headed in the wrong direction, Um, that sometimes it means that you're trying to reach the next goal, the next plateau, Um, but that the most important thing we can all do is engage the people who are around us, let the people who love you know that you're struggling and to get the support and the help that you need. Oh, definitely. I think that's, I love, uh, I love any kind of inspirational quote I can like remember and and use in in those times. That's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. And good luck with uh, the launch. Thank you. So, Kate, what do you think about dropping the ball? It's going to be really, really hard for me. I know, right? I mean, there are certainly a lot of those little teeny things that I do that I do feel kind of resentful about and wish that I didn't have to do. But I am the type of personality, though, too, that I I don't know that I would be okay if they didn't get done. Yeah. You know? Um, But that's, yeah, I guess that's something that you have to to think about letting go of. Yeah, it's interesting because what she's saying, and I think Gretchen Rubin also mentioned something really similar. If she was saying... If you don't really care about your house being messy, then don't tidy your house. But then mm-hmm. if you do, then make time for it. And there are things that are nagging away at me and I have tried to ignore them, but then I feel like I just can't. Like I have to kind of find the time for it. And I don't know if that's more of a time management thing or like I do just really need to let it go. 
Because when I really think about it, it's like actually keeping the house tidy is a really good example because that's one that I've been like kind of struggling with. And it's like, well, it's if it's a little messy, it's not going to really like affect how I work. But for some reason, I just like feel the need. Yeah, my my level is like when it gets disgusting. I'm like, oh, wait, it's really, I really need to vacuum. <laughs> it's like reached that point. But yeah. yeah, I don't like worry about it otherwise. But I think for me, what has me, because I do feel like I have like pretty good work-life balance overall. And I think what has made, what's helped me feel that way is not having a smartphone. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel the pressure to check in on work. Like I do check at work at home quite frequently, but I do it as a more like conscious. I think when you have to open a laptop and sit down, it's more of a conscious thing rather yeah, than definitely. like, oh, let me look to the side for a second and scroll on my phone and read Slack or whatever. Um, and so that's helped me really be able to be present in the thing that I'm doing. I think that really makes you feel like you don't have that balance. Yeah, no, that's a good point. At the end of the day, it comes down to prioritizing, right? Like usually when you kind of see what your long-term goal is, it becomes really hard to let go of things that maybe aren't that important to you. Mm -hmm. I I guess the takeaway is uh, we should be more forgiving of ourselves, but maybe... I'm very forgiving of (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. Please teach me. (laughs) I'm not there yet. I think some of it comes with age, too, and, like, realizing that not everything is as important as it feels like or that the whole external expectation thing. Yeah, so someone told me that when I turned 30, I was going to suddenly stop caring about what other people (laughs) think, and to an extent, that's true, but I'm still waiting for that to happen. I'm like, where is this magical? I don't really care about what other people think. I want want that right now. You wanted it to be, yeah, magical on the (laughs) the clock struck midnight. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. Give it some time, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's it for this week's episode of Secrets of the Most Productive People. Find more articles about work-life balance, work-life integration, and emotional labor in the show notes below. Have you figured out how to find more balance in your life? Do you and your partner have a system that works? Let us know using the hashtag FCMostProductive. And this is actually the last episode of the first season of Secrets of the Most Productive People. We just want to pause here to thank you for listening. We've really enjoyed making the podcast and we're looking forward to bringing you more great productivity content in season two. Whether you have listened to every episode or just dipped in once in a while, or even if this is the first episode you've listened to, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for information on season two. But in the meantime, we have a special bonus episode coming. It's going to be a live episode recorded at the Fast Company Innovation Festival in New York City. If you want to come see it recorded in person, you can visit fastcompany.com slash festival and use the code FC Most Productive to get 30% off of your ticket. Don't forget to listen to our other podcast, Creative Conversation with Casey Afaini. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Shannon Berner. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.